Father, we pray as we turn to your word, that you'll help us, that you'll bless us, you'll speak to us. God, I pray that as we draw this subject to a conclusion this morning, that we will have felt the benefit of looking at this whole topic of praise and worship. We thank you, Lord, that we believe that you've been helping us and you've been encouraging us. We pray you'll continue, Lord, to do that in the days that are to come. We ask it in your name and for your glory. Amen. Don't intend to be too long this morning, uh, but for the last, uh, I don't know how many weeks now, uh, the topic, the series that we've been studying is, of course, praise and worship. Today, we arrive at our final study in this series. Personally, I believe we've only scratched the surface. There's so much more we could have looked at. For example, there's so much more we could say about, for example, what praise and worship is and what it isn't. There's so much more we could have said that we haven't said. There's so much more we could have said about what the benefits of praise and worship are. But in everything we've looked at, one thing we can definitely say. One thing is clear. Praise and worship generally is something we do. It's not something we think about or talk about. It's something we actively get engaged in. It's a verb. It's a, it's a doing word. So whether we use the word praise or the word worship, both are doing words. It's, it's activity. There's something we do. And with that understanding, when it comes to our worship in the church, it can and is expressed in a variety of different ways. You know, even listening to God's word when it's preached is worship. Like I'm doing now, that is worship. It shouldn't be something that's done passively, but it should be something we are actively engaged in. Indeed, this alone is, is a subject, actually this alone is a subject that we could have looked at in this service. How to listen to, how to engage when the Word of God is being preached. What can we do so that when the Word of God is preached, we listen to it and it, it, it takes root, you could say, in our hearts. Listening and responding correctly, correctly to biblical teaching in this way is an act of worship. When we come together to worship and praise God, it's something that has expression. It's seen or heard. The most familiar form of worship is that which is expressed in music and singing. We've been doing that this morning. Paul even commands us that we do this. In Colossians 3 verse 16 he says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom as you sing psalms, hymns and spiritual songs with gratitude in your hearts to God. And of course Psalm 150 says this, Praise him with the sounding of the trumpet, praise him with the harp and lyre, praise him with tambourine and dancing, praise him with the strings and flute, praise him with a clash of cymbals, praise Praise him with resounding symbols. If we had time this morning, we could turn in God's word and discover that the various ways we express our worship and praise to God include singing, the playing of music, shouting, dancing, clapping our hands, lifting up our hands. So we express our praise to God with our mouths, with our hands, and with our feet. With our hands, with our mouths, and with our feet. 
And in the light of this, I intend to conclude this series by looking seriously and sensitively and honestly at how we express our praise to God, how we participate and contribute during our worship times. If I was to ask you what the purpose of Paul's letter to the Corinthian church was, especially what he had to say in 1 Corinthians 14, I wonder what your answer would be. Well, it seems very clear that he wrote to them to bring some order to their contribution during their worship times together. They didn't have a problem contributing and participating in worship, they were very active in that area. They were not slow in coming forward. They were very active in the use of the gifts of the Spirit. The problem was, they were so active that they'd lost sensitivity in their worship times. And as a result, it was causing confusion. They were very active, they were more active than we are. It would seem, anyhow, when you read the chapter, they were very, very vocal. The gifts were being displayed all over the place and continually, but it was creating confusion because there was no sensitivity in their contribution. So they were not lacking in gifts or the use of them, but they were using them sensitively. So Paul writes to them, not to, discover, not to discourage their contribution or their participation. No, his purpose was to bring some correction, some order, some guidelines, so that their participation and contribution would become a blessing, would be effective, so they would learn how to effectively contribute and participate during their times of worship together. Contained in 1 Corinthians chapter 14 are some principles that if practiced, if put into place, will help us during our times of worship. They highlight those characteristics that should motivate our contribution. So this morning what I'd like to do is, I'd like to look at the principles that should guide our worship contributions. The principles that should guide us in our worship times together. And the first one is this. Edification. Edification. Does it edify? It must be edifying. 1 Corinthians 14 verse 26. Paul says, when you come together, everyone has a hymn or a word of instruction, a revelation, a tongue or an interpretation, all of these must be done for the strengthening or edification of the church. In all that we do during our times of worship together, in whatever way we contribute and participate in worship, our objective should always be to edify one another, to strengthen one another, to build each other up. Whether it's musical contribution, whether it's leading in worship, whether it's singing, whether it's personal prayer and praise, whether it's a revelation, whether it's a prophetic utterance, and even the preaching of God's word. Whatever it is, the objective should be to encourage and build up the people of God. That's what it's all about, folks. 
We come this morning for many reasons, but in and woven through all that we do, we should be here to bless one another, to edify one another, to strengthen one another, to encourage one another. And that principle, of course, this principle should be central to all that we do anyhow, not just during our worship. 1 Corinthians 12 verse 7 says, Now now to each one the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. And he goes on to talk about the gifts of the Spirit. In 1 Corinthians 14 verse 12, Since you are eager to have spiritual gifts, try to excel in gifts that build up the church. Romans 14 verse 19 says, "Let Let us therefore make every effort to do what leads to peace and mutual edification. 1 Thessalonians 5 verse 11 says, therefore encourage one another and build each other up just as in fact you are doing. It's very interesting. 1 Corinthians 14 verse 12 says it. Read it again. Since you're eager to have spiritual gifts, try to excel in gifts that build up the church. Very interesting that. So Paul talks about excelling in gifts that build up the church. What gifts do you think he's talking about? Because he's obviously talking about some gifts that particularly build up the church. So he's implying that not necessarily all of them do. But some do. So what gifts build up the church? Well, we haven't got time this morning, and I, there's not a lot of room in here, so I'm not going to read the passage. But it seems to me that he's referring to those gifts that don't need interpretation. Those gifts that we can understand without an interpretation. He's not forbidding tongues, as long as there is an interpretation, but he's saying prophecy is better. Read 1 Corinthians 14, verse 1 to 5, you don't believe me. He's saying prophecy is better. Prophecy is more edifying and less confusing. Prophecy people can understand. See, what Paul is saying in 1 Corinthians 14, verse 1 to 5, he says, you've got to move on from tongues and interpretation. Move on to prophecy. Grow. Move further on. Our objective, our motivation must, in all that we do during our worship time, to build up, to strengthen, and encourage one another. And so we need to ask ourselves the question when we come together, what I'm going to do now, what I'm going to say, is it going to be edify, is it going to edify people? Is it going to bless the church? Is it going to build people up? Is it going to strengthen them? What I'm about to say now, is it going to encourage them? So, number one, edification. Number two, love. Is it love motivated? Because it must be love motivated. In 1 Corinthians 14, verse 1, Paul says this, Follow the way of love and eagerly desire spiritual gifts. So God's word is saying that our contribution and our participation in worship 
including the operation of the gifts of the Spirit, should be motivated, controlled, and dominated by love. Friends, I'm convinced that in all that we do, during our times of worship, love should be the motivating characteristic. Our motive must be love. 1 Corinthians 8 verse 1 says, Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. And before Paul begins to talk directly to this church about the way they are conducting themselves during their worship times together, he devotes 13 chapters in chapter 13 uh, to do with the importance of love being the motivation behind all we do. That great chapter, 1 Corinthians 13, is sandwiched between chapter 12 and chapter 14, which is all about gifts. And so right in the middle, central and maybe more important than gifts is character. In fact, if you just have gifts without character, without love, it doesn't affect and it it turns people off. That's why we've been discussing as leadership and uh, our series at the beginning of next year, right from uh, first week, is going to be the fruit of the Spirit. Because character is so important. You know, character causes the problems. You upset somebody, it's because of what comes out of your mouth. It's character. Anger. Whatever it is. It's because we're not controlling this flesh part of us. And sometimes not even what we say, it's the way we say it. It's character. The problems people have in church is not so much gift all the time, it's character. And in 1 Corinthians 13 he describes what love is like. How love is expressed. He says love is patient. Love is kind. Love doesn't envy. Love doesn't boast. Love love is not proud. Love is not rude. Love is not self-seeking. Love is not eagerly angered. Love keeps no records of wrongs. Love doesn't delight in evil but rejoices with the truth. Love always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. You know, good exercise would be to put your name in the place of love. It's a challenging exercise. Let me put my name in there. Kevin is patient. Kevin is kind. Put your name there. Kevin doesn't envy. Kevin doesn't boast. Kevin is not proud. Kevin is not rude. Kevin is not self-seeking. Kevin is not easily angered. Kevin keeps no record of wrongs. Kevin doesn't delight in evil but rejoices with the truth. Kevin always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Put your name there. It's a challenge, isn't it? Friends, if these love characteristics influence our times of worship, what an effect that would have. 
that would affect, that would influence how we contribute and participate in worship, what we do and say, when we contribute, if we contribute, the way we contribute, what a difference that would have during our worship times. I will try and find this one. Without papers for one another. The first three verses. Oh, this is crazy. And I will show you a more excellent way. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am only a resounding gong or clanging symbol. If I have the gift of prophecy and fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have the gift of faith that can move mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and surrender my body to the flames, but have not love, I gain nothing. So to emphasize the power an effect this has, Paul says we can do all those things. But if there's no love, it is not it is non-effective. When our motivation is isn't motivated by love, it's horrible, it's deafening, it's turning off, it's unproductive, it's like the clanging of cymbals in somebody's ears. But when our contribution is motivated by love, what a blessing it is. It's totally the opposite. It's beautiful and it turns people on. So, edification love. Thirdly, God's glory. Does it glorify God? It must be for God's glory. So something else that should influence our contribution and participation during worship time is the glory of God. I, I think it would be true to say that this is, this is what this series really has, has been all about. This is the purpose of worship, that God gets the glory. That he's the one who's lifted up, he's the one we boast in, he's the one we exalt, he's the one we adore, he's the, he's the one we praise, he's the one we bow down to, he's the one we glorify. This is what we should be seeking to do in all that we do in our Christian life. It's all about him, all about you, Jesus. And this should be our desire when we join together in worship. This should be our objective in whatever way we participate or contribute during our worship times. Listen to the following verses. Ascribe to the Lord, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord glory due to his name. Not to us, but to your name be glory. No flesh is to glory in his presence. Therefore, as it is written, let him who boast, boast in the Lord. We need to continually be examining our motives. And here's the type of question we, we need to be, that needs to be for, before us. Is what I'm a bringing, bringing this morning for the glory of God? Does my contribution bring glory to God? 
And whatever our contribution in worship, our objective should be the glory of God. The glory and praise goes to the Lord. In Isaiah 42 verse 4, God says to the prophet, I am the Lord, that is my name. I will not give my glory to another, nor my praises to idols. So easy for ourselves to be seen and not Jesus only. So easy for us to get in the way of God's glory. It's so easy for us to, for us by the things we say that we do and how we do them, to project ourselves more than we should instead of magnifying the Lord. That's what we're here to do this morning. That's what our attitude and desire should be. I think uh, of a I can't think of a better description of what we are here to do this morning than magnify the Lord. The Bible says, magnify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. What happens when we magnify something? What do you use a magnifying glass for? To help you see something more clearly. To make the object larger. I don't think there's a greater word that we could use to describe why we're here this morning. We're here to magnify the Lord, to make him bigger, to, so that he becomes preeminent, so he becomes the, the most important person in our gatherings. In all we do, whether it's singing, which should be passionate, where it's individual praise in our prayers, in our practical service even, whatever our contribution, whatever we participate, however we participate, our desire is that the Lord is magnified. Notice what the word says. Magnify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. It's not just one person. We do it together, friends. It's all of us magnifying the Lord, making him bigger. Will you join with me in magnifying the Lord today? Can we exalt his name together? Dr. Tozer puts it like this. He says, wouldn't it it be wonderful to go to a meeting where the only attraction was God? Wouldn't it be wonderful to go to a meeting where the only attraction in all that we do is God? So, edification, love, God's glory. And then finally, fitting. I'm not talking about suit. Is it fitting? It must be fitting. So you might ask, what am I referring to? Well, what, I, what do I mean? I'm talking about sensitivity in worship. Does it fit? Because often this is an area we really struggle with. And there's so much that we could say here, it's actually a study on its own. But allow me just to highlight a few thoughts this morning. If God is to be glorified, and if we are to be edified, we need to learn to worship God in a fitting, sensitive an appropriate way. We need to learn to contribute in an appropriate way. Our contributions need to be in keeping with the flow the Spirit of God is leading us in a meeting. 
This was the problem, one of the problems, with the Corinthian church, which was very vibrant, very charismatic. They were Pentecostal through and through. There was life, there was passion, and much spontaneity, and much contribution, and participation. But what there wasn't was, was sensitivity. In fact, it had become a little bit chaotic. There was an anything goes kind of attitude that was taking place in the meeting. And so Paul spent a whole chapter giving some instruction and laying down some guidelines, especially with regard to their lack of sensitivity and their misuse of the gifts of the Spirit, and particularly the vocal gifts. And Paul reiterates and re-emphasizes in two verses this thought of sensitivity. In verse 33 he says, For God is not a God of disorder, but of peace. The AV puts it like this. For God is not the author of confusion, but of peace. And in verse 40 he says, But everything should be done in a fitting and orderly way. Now, I have seen churches where there is anything but order. It's completely chaotic. It's confusing and there's disorder. Can I suggest that if it applied then, if that applied in what was a very highly charged charismatic fellowship, it's good enough for us also. Friends, we are a Pentecostal church, and as such we believe in the liberty and moving of the Spirit, but the danger with this is the danger of excess and incorrect contribution. Power, fire, and freedom can be dangerous if not controlled. We have to try and hit a balance. What we don't want is legalism. That's the last thing we want. We don't want formality. We don't want deadness. We don't want ritual. Neither do we want license. That is fanaticism. Anything goes, extreme nonsense, disorder, flakiness. People always seen pictures. Which mean nothing half the time. Flakiness. Deadness. Extreme nonsense. What we need is liberty. That is lively order, spiritually controlled life, joy and the Holy Spirit's power. John 3 verse 6 tells us that the Holy Spirit is like wind. Jesus says the wind blows where it pleases. You hear the sound, 
but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. And we need to be continually open to the genuine moving interruption and redirection of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit can sometimes be an unpredictable, as unpredictable as wind. Sometimes God may lead us in our worship, so it's like the day of Pentecost, fiery and noisy. Other times God may lead us in our worship and bring us to a place like that in the temple when no one was able to minister. Some meetings might be like the powerboat splashing through the waves, all engines roaring. It's like you're holding on tight, you can hardly hear yourself speak. On other occasions, it might be like you're in a yacht with sails hoisted high in the breeze, smoothly and powerfully and peacefully riding the waves by the power of the wind. Both have their place. Both can be exhilarating and powerful. Both are unforgettable and beautiful. The wind can be so powerful and gentle, therefore we need to be sensitive to his leading. Here's the type of questions we need to ask ourselves as we prepare to contribute and participate. Is what I'm about to do or say fitting at this time? Is it appropriate Or is it going to cut through what God is doing? Is it going to be like coming against the grain? Or is it going to flow with the grain? Does it fit in the overall direction and flow of the meeting? Will it enhance the worship? Will it take the worship forward? Is it in keeping with the mood in which the Spirit is leading us at this moment in time? Friends, never forget, God is not a God of disorder, but of peace. But everything should be done in a fitting and orderly way. If these principles guide us in our worship, in our worship times, then our worship times will become more powerful, times of encounter with God. Even unbelievers will be attractive, attracted. They won't be turned off, but turned on. They will notice how our worship encourages, strengthens, and and changes us. And as they observe the joy we are expressing and the reality of our experience and how we value God's word, they will sense the presence of God even though they might not be able to explain it. Now I've noticed that when, when unbelievers watch believers relate to God in an intelligent, joyful, liberating, and sincere manner, it creates desire in them to know God too. It happened on the day of Pentecost. I mean, there's some crazy things going on there. You can think about it. And it can happen when we come together to worship also. In genuine worship, God's presence is felt. God's pardon is offered. God's purposes are revealed. And God's power is displayed. That sounds quite like an evangelistic sort of meeting to me. I want to bring my final thought. My final thought is this. Our irreplaceable priority should be Jesus. Our irreplaceable priority should always be Jesus. And so to conclude, I'd like to draw your attention to the fourth chapter of the book of John. I know if you want to turn to it, you can do where Jesus is talking to that Samaritan woman in the geographical region of Samaria. 
there are two things that are scandalous, you could say, about this scene. First, it was unthinkable that a Jewish man, particularly a rabbi, would talk to a Samaritan woman, as Jesus did, with words of dignity and honor. That was quite amazing. That was not the done thing. Second, it was extraordinary that a Jew would even be found in Samaria in the first place. The racial tension between Jews and Samaritans was centuries old. And no geographical spot was more avoided by the Jews than Samaria. But Jesus ignored this and he speaks to her at the point of her deepest need. And in verse 16 to 18, this is what Jesus says. Go call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, you are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you have had five husbands and the man you now have is not your husband. What you just said is quite true. She didn't even know this man. She'd never met him before. And suddenly, he revealed the dark secrets of her life. She was embarrassed. She felt the weight of her guilt. So, What did she do? Interestingly, she quickly shifted the subject from herself to him and to matters of worship. So she changed the subject. The JWs are very good at doing that, by the way. They change the subject. When you get them, they'll move on to something else. Have you noticed how people do strange things when their lives are exposed? And in verse 19 to 20, we read, Sir... I can see you are a prophet. Because you've told me things you shouldn't know because I don't know you. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Modern Jews often say this. Listen. If you want to party, go to Tel Aviv. If you want to do business, go to Haifa. If you want to worship, go to Jerusalem. That's what they are. That's what, uh, uh, quite a well-known phrase. If you want to party, go to Tel Aviv. If you want to do business, go to Haifa. If you want to worship, go to Jerusalem. Even today, as in the first century, Jews say that Jerusalem is the place for worship. But Jesus clarified this, that this is not true. And in verse 21 to 22, he says, Believe me, woman, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. And so Jesus took the time to teach her that worship is not connected to a place, but a person. It's not connected to a place, but to a person. The problem she had was that she had no connection with the one she was to worship. She knew all about the place, but she didn't know the person. So Jesus makes it very clear that worship is not anything to do with a place or a building. It's not some mystical groping in the dark after an unknowable deity. Rather, it begins with a clear, definite, conscious connection with the living God. And here he emphasizes... Uh, the irreplaceable priority. Salvation, he emphasizes, is from 
the Jews. Notice Jesus didn't say for the Jews. He said salvation is from the Jews. In other words, salvation came from the Jews through Jesus Christ. There's not one salvation for Israel, for the nation of Israel, and a salvation for the Gentiles. It's all through Jesus Christ. There's only one way to be saved. It's through Jesus Christ. And here we must be clear, and here is the gospel message. For a person to be able to worship God the Father, they must come to and through Jesus. That includes both Jew and Gentile. Jesus makes this clear when he said, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one comes to the Father but by me, through me. Now that might sound pretty narrow, and yes it is narrow. We are living in a pluralistic, postmodern era when people don't care what your God is as long as you're sincere. You know what I say to that? Hogwash. Hogwash. It doesn't matter who, it does matter who you believe. Let's be very clear, it's only through Jesus that a person can know the living God. Salvation is received by faith alone, through and in Jesus Christ only. It is Jesus that gives us peace in our hearts. It is Jesus that gives us a reason for living. It is Jesus that gives us the joy that the world cannot give. It is Jesus that makes it possible for us to worship God. It's not politically correct, but it's biblically correct, and it's accurate to say the Lord Jesus Christ is the only way to the Father. He is the way, he is the truth, and he is the life. Jesus then tells this woman how those properly connected to God will worship him. In verse 23 he says, A time is coming, and has now come, when true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for they, they are the kind of worshippers the Father seeks. What's the one thing God wants from us? Here we read that there's one thing God wants from his followers. God seeks our worship. God seeks worshippers. He loves it when we are connected to him. When we are preoccupied with him alone. When we are not playing at at church. The Father wants us to worship him with our spirits fully engaged. According to the truth found in the scriptures. That is what true worship is. That should be our irreplaceable priority. Let's pray. God, I just pray you'll help us and 